Hello, I'm joined today by Dr. Aidan Kane from Economics at NUI Galway to talk about Irish economic history and in particular his research project on Dunra. Hello Aidan, how are you today? Hi Angela, very well. Would you like to start by introducing yourself? Sure, I'm Aidan Kane. Uh, I'm a lecturer in the economics department here at NUI Galway. I teach a range of courses including in, in Irish economic history and about the contemporary Irish economy but uh, my research is mainly in this this area of Irish economic history and Irish economic history data sets. So that's that's what I mainly do on a day-to-day basis. And can you tell me more about your Dunera project that you're currently working on? Sure. So essentially, Dunera is, is a project which brings together a large number of Irish economic history data sets. So it's a data repository, as we'd say. And just to explain the, the name itself, uh, Dunera is, is an Irish word. It, it usually refers to a, a songbook or an anthology, a sort of a collection of poems or songs that might be uh, handed down in a family. So we sort of borrow this word to refer to the project itself. We're sort of playing on the idea that uh, you might refer to a treasury of songs or poems. So we have a treasury of digital data. And essentially, it's it's an online project. Uh, we, we have a presence, dunera.ie, where we're showcasing a number of Irish economic history uh, data sets. Can you tell me about the key data sets that you're currently focusing on as part of this project? Sure. There are essentially two that we're really uh, zeroing in on at the moment. And as it happens, they both relate to the Irish economy in the 18th century or, or, or thereabouts. So pretty much from around 1700 to around 1800. And the first one is what we'd refer to as a fiscal uh, data set. That is, it, it refers to data on the government of Ireland's revenue and expenditure, its taxation revenue and expenditure, essentially, uh, year by year for that whole century. So it's surprisingly detailed data set. It draws upon the printed records of, of course, the old Irish Parliament, the pre-Active Union Irish Parliament, which was uh, located in what is now the Bank of Ireland headquarters on College Green. So that's number one, it's 18th century Irish uh, fiscal data. And then the second data set, again, it's, it's 18th century, but it relates to data on Ireland's international trade, its exports and its imports. So again, it's essentially an annual data set. It's an incredibly detailed account of what we were importing, what we were exporting uh, as a country for that century and indeed for more. That's a project that's really in progress. We're at relatively early stages on that one. So essentially two major data sets at the moment, one to do with fiscal data and the other to do with trade data. So we have these very detailed records of Irish revenue from the 18th century. How was the Irish government raising revenue during this period? Well, one thing to say is that, of course, you know, we're talking about a fiscal system, a governmental system of, you know, perhaps 300 years ago. It was very different in many respects. And one basic difference on the revenue side is that there essentially was nothing like an income tax or indeed VAT at the time. So the government raised its revenue, not really from income or VAT, but essentially by taxing trade directly. And that sort of makes sense practically, because particularly when you're an island, it's much easier to track the flow of goods into and and out of the country and to tax them as they physically come into ports. That's been the case, you know, for most countries for centuries uh, before a full taxation system, if you like, is developed. And for most of the century, taxes on trade, on international trade, were the mainstay of revenue. 
what you see, and this has been sort of well known for some time, is that there's a massive trade boom in Ireland from the middle of the 18th century, so from about the 1750s onwards, which pretty much continues for the rest of the century. And indeed, you see sort of similar booms in other countries. That meant that there was a great deal more revenue for the government to spend. The one other thing I should say is that towards the end of the 18th century, there's more reliance uh, placed on direct taxes on particular goods, especially as it happens on alcohol, because again, it's, it's sort of relatively easy to tax the brewers or the distilleries, if you can find them directly, or to tax uh, consumption of these goods. So towards the end of the century, let's say from the 1790s onwards, Ireland, as part of the British system, is uh, engaged in, in wars with the French and with, with Napoleon and, and, and so on. There's a need for more and more revenue. So they start taxing alcohol more heavily and luxuries, essentially, more heavily. So even things like coaches that you know, a relatively well-off person in the city might have, or they would also tax vices, like there were, there were taxes introduced on playing cards and dice and things like that. You know, it's basically trade in the first instance, and then these other excise taxes essentially become more important towards the end. And just to look at the other side of the coin, what were the main categories that the government was spending this revenue on? The reason for it all, in essence, was to fund military expenditure uh, right throughout the century, whether you know there was a major war on or not. So it, it varies a little bit, but you know, in many years, seventy or eighty percent of the revenue is spent on the army, essentially the standing army. That there isn't really much spent on the naval side. And that's sort of crucial in understanding the governmental system in Ireland in the 18th century. To simplify a little bit, but it's essentially a machine for raising revenue to fund a very substantial military presence in the country. And that's really doing two things. It's, in a sense, keeping an eye on, if you like, the native population or, or if you like, protecting the, the settlers or the descendants of settlers. So there's that kind of role of keeping public order, if, if you like, given that you don't have a police force uh, of any kind of significance. But the other function it fulfills is that in Ireland you have a standing army which stands ready to participate in the wars of the British Empire if they're called upon. And it's sort of useful for the British system that they're located in Ireland because it's politically difficult to have a large standing army. That is, you know, people who are on essentially a salary who are full-time soldiers. It's, it's politically very difficult to have them in England or in Britain because to have a large standing army is seen as perhaps threatening to the rights of Parliament. So, so Ireland uh, performs this very interesting role in the British system, a very useful role, if you like. And the operations of the revenue system are closely tied to it. This pretty large military presence needs to be financed. You need to pay the soldiers and the officers. You need to build barracks. And there's about sort of 300 barracks are built around the country, some of them quite small, but essentially in every town in, in the country. So they have to be built. They have to be maintained. They have to be supplied. You have to buy ammunition. So you need money. So you need taxes. And, th and that's what really... Yeah, motivates, in a sense, the collection of the records that we've been capturing or we've been capturing the data from. 
And from your records, what other categories of expenditure do you find? Well, throughout, there's, of course, a certain amount of expenditure on the core functions of government, the chief officers of government, the Lord Justices and, and the Viceroy and so on. All of these people you know, sort of expect fairly significant uh, salaries and they have servants and clerks and so on. But, you know, in comparison to the scale of any modern government, central government in Ireland in, in the 18th century is, is for the most part, uh, pretty small. You know, you're, you're talking about tens, maybe hundreds of people rather than, than thousands of people. What does change, however, and again, it's from mid-century as trade booms, as therefore tax revenue booms, as more revenue comes in, you can spend more as, as a government, is that Parliament, the Irish Parliament in College Green, it becomes more activist in uh, supporting industry, for example, and in making grants to improve internal navigation in the country. So this is where, as, as many people will know, a lot of the uh, canal system that we have dates from. You know, somebody needed to plan and to build uh, the various canals around the country. And, and particularly from mid-18th century, that happens with parliamentary support through public expenditure. There's also a sort of a variety of grants that come in from around this era and they really build up in the 1780s to support particular activities. The linen industry is always supported throughout the century, but the government begins to give subsidies to encourage farmers to grow grain and to supply it to the major cities. And again, the rationale is that you have an urban working class. They're not growing their own food. They need to be supplied with uh, cheap bread. If you don't have cheap bread arising from cheap grain regularly supplied, uh, you're going to have trouble in the city. You're going to have perhaps riots and, and so on. So Parliament begins to give grants for that sort of purpose. It gives grants for the fishing industry to develop, particularly in the northwest of the country, and a variety of sort of smaller individual schemes to support particular industries. Now, there's a big sort of question about how effective this was and did it actually help economic growth or was, you know, some of it wasted, was some of it given to favourites of the parliamentarians and so on. But what is quite clear is that by mid, certainly late century, it's not just military expenditure, it's being undertaken. But what we could call expenditure on economic development is a surprisingly large part of the picture, maybe at, at times up to 20-25% of total government expenditure, something like that. Just turning to your other data set around international trade, what countries were we trading with during the 18th century? Well, it's it, perhaps not surprising that we, we, of course, traded with England and with Scotland or eventually we'd say with Great Britain. Although it is the case that at the start of the century, England doesn't seem to have been our major trading partner in terms of exports. That would have been France. The accounts don't initially distinguish very finely between the different countries. So they group France with French colonies together. But you also have Holland and Flanders, I guess you might call it, the, the low countries. There's a category there which represents the major trading ports in the Baltic region and, and Scandinavia. So that's separately distinguished in the accounts. Spain and Portugal, as I say. But one of the major categories, which is perhaps not so well known and appreciated, is Ireland's trading relationships with what are called the plantations in, in the accounts. And that refers essentially to British North America. 
So the mainland uh, colonies that Britain had in North America, some of which, of course, become part of the United States, some of which become part of Canada, and also the colonies in the Caribbean islands, in the British Caribbean islands. So, so they're sort of all grouped together under one category, the plantations. But in general, the accounts record the exports to and imports from uh, those major trading areas. They become quite a bit more detailed after about the 1780s, where individual states in the United States are recorded and individual islands, in fact, in the Caribbean are noted and individual countries in Europe. But that's the broad picture. So, you know, Great Britain, Europe in, in general, and then crucially, this trade with the New World or with the plantations are really the key elements of all of this. What were the main elements of Ireland's trade at that time? In terms of exports, as people would probably guess, Ireland was, of course, an overwhelmingly agricultural country. And again, it performed a very important and interesting role in the global trading system and in particular the British imperial system in that it certainly supplied agricultural goods, uh, agricultural output uh, directly to Britain itself. But increasingly important as the century wore on was what we would call the provisions trade whereby Ireland would export not live cattle, but beef in, in barrels, salted beef, for example, and salted pork and other forms of preserved meat, essentially to supply the military, either as part of naval provisioning, so kind of ships calling at Irish ports, uh, particularly Cork, but not just, just Cork, or again in respect of sending uh, food provisions to the plantations to the Caribbean. And one of the, the things that happens there is that the Caribbean islands, uh, you know, which are essentially were slave uh, colonies, use the land so intensively for sugar production or tobacco production or rum production. You know, every possible square inch to a point is, is really used to grow these cash crops. So they don't really grow crops there on those islands to feed either the slave owners or, or the slaves. So somebody has to provide that. And to some extent, Ireland fills the gap there. The other major category, apart from salted meat and, and provisions generally, that would include butter, for example, would be in respect of the linen industry. And that's, again, uh, th these are not all about the plantations, but some of that relates to, uh, as we understand it, lower quality linen for clothing of the slaves in the plantations. Other parts of the linen trade would have been uh, much higher uh, quality and going directly to English markets or to continental markets. So really the provisions trade and linen, you know, for the most part dominate the export numbers for most of the century. And linen is, is extraordinary. It, it grows from almost nothing in you know the early 1700s to I, I think it's something like 40 million yards of linen being exported towards the end of the century, which is you know, a lot in, in anyone's book. Looking at the imports, what type of goods were Ireland importing during the 18th century? So in a sense, the imports are sort of a mirror image almost of the exports. The exports are, as I've said, you know, principally agricultural goods. But there's a whole range of perhaps more uh, higher value added, we would say now, or more luxurious goods that Ireland doesn't necessarily produce for itself and are imported. There are some exceptions to that. There, you know, there are imports of grain, which sort of vary quite a bit, though we're exporting that also. But some of the more interesting categories relate to perhaps quite modest quantities of quite specialized goods. So there's a great deal of 
detail about groceries, for example. And in that category, a lot of it you're talking about herbs and spices particularly, so aniseeds and cinnamon and cloves and so on. There's about 20 of them distinguished in the accounts each year. These would mainly be coming in, of course, to the urban centres and are for those on, let's say, you might say middle incomes, middle to upper incomes. Similar sort of category would be goods that relate to textiles in the sense of yes, certainly finished goods. There's every year there's you know records of the number of pairs of gloves that are being imported, the number of hats is there, but also a huge amount of detail on dyeing stuffs. So some of that may have been for people dying their textiles at home. Probably a lot of it was to do, of course, with small industry. And then I suppose the final category of this sort is in each year in the accounts, again, about 20 categories under the heading of haberdashery. So all sorts of laces and silks and threads distinguished by different types. So you have sort of black thread and gold and silver thread and so on. So one of the things that's very striking is that in some of the years that we've looked at, there may be a hundred separate goods that are recorded as being exported, most of which are agricultural, a lot of which are for example, hides, eight or ten different types of animal hides. Whereas on the import side, you might have as many as 300 commodities, separate commodities recorded. Again, you know, some of them may not amount to very much, even so a few pounds or a few hundred pounds in a year. But they're telling you something about the consumption patterns of at least a certain group of people in Ireland at the time. These goods that essentially weren't available, weren't being manufactured uh, or whatever, weren't simply available in Ireland. So they get imported again from you know, quite a range of countries, including Great Britain, Europe, and eventually the plantations again are supplying some of this. And have we a sense from our records who the imports were for? I suppose, as I've indicated, for certain categories of what we might describe as luxuries, I think we're not talking about the broad mass of population, you know, consuming groceries in the sense that are recorded in these accounts or haberdashery, but you're talking about presumably mainly an urban middle to upper middle class, perhaps those who are more prosperous in the country, the landed gentry, if we could use that term, or aristocracy. So I guess one always has to be careful about how representative any of these sort of numbers are and to be conscious that, you know, it may tell you a great deal about the living standards, the consumption standards of a very important part of Irish society. But particularly as the century goes on and there's massive population growth amongst basically the poorest of the poor, you know, you could at least raise a question as to what these data tell you about their living standards. Perhaps not very much. Perhaps, you know, there's a large section of the population who don't have a very direct connection with the cash economy, the trading economy, and certainly not with the export economy. So there are lots of questions which arise from that. And we're just sort of conscious that one has to tread carefully here in interpreting what we're seeing in these records. Just in relation to actually accessing these records, Aidan, how do we actually get these records? The records themselves, just to be sort of explicit about it, these are officially called the ledgers of imports and exports of Ireland. They're essentially large books with about sort of 100, say, A3 pages in them. They're manuscripts, they're handwritten. And the ones that we're looking at are physically located in the UK National Archives in Kew, just outside London. And they've been there you know, for 300 years in some cases. And they have been consulted over the years, you know, physically by scholars going over and taking them down and transcribing parts of them. 
what we're doing is we're getting the UK National Archives to digitize them, essentially to photograph each and every page where we're doing the first 80 or 90 volumes in a first sort of run. They do that at a very high resolution, very high quality, so you can really see every single number down to a fine level. And they essentially send those images over to us electronically. And we're in the business of capturing the data from those through various means. So as I say, originally, you know, these are paper uh, records bound volumes, but it makes sense for us to digitize them and then to work with those digital images, those photographs, essentially. You mentioned there that some of these ledgers are over 300 years old. What sort of condition are they in? Are they easy to read? Are they legible? Sure. For the most part, they are. And again, it's it's perhaps surprising, but they've been pretty well preserved. One reason why they're fairly easy to read for the most part is that they're highly structured. They're essentially page after page of data in rows and columns. The pages are ruled. The handwriting is generally really, really clear. The clerks who prepared these accounts would have been trained in, well, commercial arithmetic, so they knew how to deal with the various units of goods, sort of quarters and bushels of grain and hundredweights and quarters and pounds of meat and barrels of beer and all of this stuff. They would have known how to do the arithmetic on these, but they were also trained in calligraphy. So it was a specific skill to be able to now, draw up accounts in a way which was legible. And in some cases, you know, there are certain parts of the accounts display pages which are summarizing, you know, the imports for a whole year where the calligraphy is very elaborate. Uh, you know, have all these sort of swirling capital letters. So they're quite beautiful in various places. But in practical terms, it means that, you know, you can pretty much read everything down to sort of fractional amounts. There are one or two exceptions. There's one volume I I think it's 1716, which is damaged by water throughout. How it happened, we don't know, or when it happened, you know, could have happened in 1717. But clearly, water has affected each and every page. Um, but even so, we're actually quite hopeful that those ones are readable, you know, and that's where the digital imaging comes in. So when you're blowing these things up at a high resolution, we can actually see through the stain in the most part without processing it in an elaborate way. There are one or two odd ones as well around that time, which are in a slightly different format from the others, but we think we'll also be able to deal with those. But essentially, it's it's a complete collection. In fact, the full run runs from just before the start of the century. The first volume is 1698 and the last volume is 1829. We think that the volumes from the 1820s onwards are perhaps not as complete as the earlier ones, but it's quite an extraordinary collection, ultimately, of uh, 140 volumes. I think in the later years, there are two volumes per year. And, you know, we're very lucky they have been preserved. There would have been other copies in Dublin, and indeed there are copies of copies in the National Library, but the corresponding set probably went up in, in flames in the various fires in the, in the four courts and the Customs House during the sort of Civil War and War of Independence. So we're lucky that we have these originals and that, that we're in a position to digitise them and we'll have them forever really. Fantastic. And what type of IT tools do you use to collate your data? Well, it starts off fairly simply that we've designed templates in Excel which really match up with the structure of the original documents. And there's a process involving physically transcribing the data. Now we get that sort of done externally, but we do have to sort of check it uh, very carefully. And part of that process involves us transferring 
the numeric data from this sort of familiar Excel spreadsheet form into more specialized software. It's essentially database software. We use a very well-known type of database system called MySQL or MySQL. And what that enables us to do, we sort of program it, we, we customize it, is that we can take the data from Excel and we can also run checks on it. We can replicate the arithmetic so we can add up the various quantities for each port or for each commodity or for each trading partner and check against the originals. We can do price times quantity, which of course is more complicated because you've got complicated quantities and complicated prices in pounds, shillings and pence. But once you've set up the programming in a piece of software like uh, MySQL, it, you know, if it works once, it pretty much works for all cases. And that would be necessary given the sort of the volume of the data involved. And what that enables us to do finally is once we have it in that format and it's clean and it's, it's checked and things are sort of adding up that we've sort of identified any errors, it means that we can then interrogate the data if you like. We can pull out various cross tabulations and summaries of it. And it also means it's relatively easy for us to make the data available online so that other people cannot just, let's say, download a spreadsheet, but they can actually interrogate the data itself. So when this is all finished, they could zero in on a particular port and, you know, ask the database, uh, show me all of the exports from that port from, you know, 1724 to 1734 or, or similar sorts of customized queries. So, you know, the details can be complicated enough, but the essence of it is relatively simple that we've got quite a, a powerful, well-known database tool, which we've applied to this set of data. And that, that enables us to make the data more widely available to wider audiences. When will we actually be able to see these data sets online? Well, quite an amount of the first data set I mentioned, the one to do with government expenditure and revenues, is in fact online on, on the Dunera site at the moment. So you can view it in a number of different ways. You, you can, in a sense, see the tables of the original accounts with the original categories and sort of browse them year by year, which can be quite interesting to see, in fact, the scale of it, the number of categories and the level of detail recorded. But for a lot of people, what really works well with this is to be able to browse the data graphically and to sort of see it charted. So you, you can do that also on the website and you can select what you want to see charted and drawn in a diagram. Uh, so different categories of expenditure and revenue for different time periods. So there's a, a good deal of data there already, which people can explore. For the trade data, again, we're at relatively early stages on, on this, but we do have some sample data online at uh, dunera.ie forward slash trade. Uh, and you can see some of the data that we've pulled out again in, in tabular form, some of it uh, sort of graphically. Eventually, we, we, we intend to have maps because we have port level data, so we should be able to relate what was going on in each of about 20 ports in Ireland to this trading data. And also we, we have a number of sample images of the original volumes. So it's sort of at lower resolution, but we, we have one example of a volume, the, the whole volume of Ireland's trade data from 1764. Just as an example, it was one of the ones that we began to work with at an early stage. So you actually be able to see there the original manuscript volume, how it's laid out, the level of detail, how it looks and then how it relates to the data that we've pulled out. And over time, I mean, we do have other uh, projects underway relating not just to the 18th century, but to 19th and 20th century, particularly Irish public finance data. You know, there are a couple of other projects in train also. 
So what's next for Dunra? Well, we're going to, in a sense, concentrate for a while on the trade project because that's you know, fairly big and fairly challenging, but it's, it's going well. And the, the next stage, I think that we're going to focus a lot on local government data, particularly from the late 19th century through to the 20th century. So again, it, it would relate to local government expenditure and revenue, whether they're raising taxes through uh, rates, particularly before the 1970s or other forms of charges and spending on you know the variety of purposes that local government does spend money on, particularly historically, um, you know, looking at health expenditure w- would be important there. So this is one of those cases of where there's, again, there's a surprising amount of very detailed data available in principle for this category. It just needs to be sort of captured from the original documents. So in principle, you have this kind of data available for essentially every local authority in the country and not just sort of county councils but before that you had a variety of well rural district councils and urban district councils some of which i think you still have but right from the 1870s for example you have about 160 local authorities called poor law unions these are the bodies which ran the workhouses right from the 1830s so a vast amount of data exists in various forms and again it would be a considerable challenge to capture all of that to correct any data to put it in a form that's consistent but our intention i think is to start off relatively modestly that we would probably select a couple of key years in the early 20th century and gather the full data set for all the local authorities and experiment with that and then think about maybe going back a little bit further so 19th century local public finances is probably the next immediate priority Aidan, thanks so much. It's been fascinating learning from our Irish economic history. I wish you the very best with your project. If you'd like to learn more about Dunra or to, indeed to view some of the data sets that are already online, you can do so at dunra.ie. Aidan, thanks again. Thanks very much, Angela.